So we are going to be talking about Jude, uh, and the title is Contending for the Faith. And just a, a few quick notes uh, before we begin. So the purpose of our study is my desire is to provide an overview of Jude. And it's one chapter, but it's 25 verses, and those verses are rich in content and worthy of deep study and exposition and honestly more than we'll have time to do. So in the words of Rod, uh, my goal uh, for us is to really kind of be a tour guide. And we're going to be walking through Jude, and at times we'll pause and we'll look at the beauty of the verse, but we're going to have to hop back on that bus and continue to go. So with that in mind, I want to commend you to a series that Pastor Dan actually did back in 2017. He did a six-part series on the book of Jude. So that's available, um, of course, on the church app, and I, I commend you to that. Lastly, uh, the content of Jude is intense. So it deals with false teachers and our call to contend for the faith. And so I, I want to emphasize up front that our purpose in teaching this is not corrective for Calvary Bible Church. It's for the purpose of edification. By God's grace, uh, when it comes to the leadership and the unity of the believers and our doctrine, um, we're doing well. So I just want to say that up front in case any questions come up. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are on your throne. Thank you that your kingdom does endure forever. Lord, we desire to know your word, and we pray that you would open it to us, Lord. Renew our minds with the truth. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray that out of my weakness, your strength would be made perfect. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther, who wrote the song that we just sang, nailed to the church doors of Wittenberg his 95 theses against the unbiblical practice of the Catholic Church in selling indulgences. And for those here that don't know what indulgences are, they essentially, the Catholic Church was promising people that by giving money to the church, they can lessen the severity of punishment that they would receive in this life and in the next. Put it bluntly, they were selling forgiveness. Now, many people, they bought into this lie. They just went along with it, but not Martin Luther. He knew the truth. And as a result of it, he couldn't just stand back. He had to take a stand and fight for the truth. It was an act of courage, and it really lit the flame of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. Now, Martin Luther was a trailblazer, but he wasn't the first. 1,400 years before Luther wrote his theses, another reformer by the name of Jude wrote his. Jude, like Luther, was concerned about the rise of the false teachers in the church, and he was inspired by God to take a stand. He understood what was at stake, not only for his readers, but for the future of the church. And this letter, the letter that we hold in our hands right now, is his battle call for true believers to fight for the faith. And I want to say this. 
it's never been more applicable than it is today. I want you to think about the lies that have infiltrated the church. We have the rise of postmodernism, which is declaring there is no absolute truth. We see the mixture of New Age religion with Christian teachings, a growing push for compromise, and the, the lie of pragmatism, which has created the seeker-sensitive church. And all of these have fallen on the church in recent years like an avalanche, and the results have been devastating. We now have a push for our younger generation to reconstruct their faith. We see the destructive heresy of the wealth and health gospel all over. Multitudes of churches are filled with unbelievers and even pulpits. And many large denominations, we've seen them crumble before our eyes. And it's not just our country. It's all over the world. And so the question that I want to ask us this morning is are we prepared to take heed to Jude's call to fight for the faith? You know, it's incredibly important that we study our faith and rejoice in our faith and share our faith. But the call that is before us this morning is to fight for our faith. You know, one of the interesting facts about Jude is that it was not a pastoral epistle. It was written to the congregation, people like you and, and people like me. It's certainly for the elders, but the call to contend for the faith was a call that was reaching out into the congregation as a whole. And so think for a moment about all that people fight for. Political movements, they come and they go. Possessions, and they fade away. But the Word of God has an eternal impact. What we believe about it affects not only our life, but our eternity. And the same goes true for unbelievers. Their response to it and our proclamation of it is the one difference that separates them between heaven and hell. There is nothing that is greater on the line. And so the question is this, what do we do? What does it mean to contend for the faith? How are we to think about apostasy and false teaching? How are we to guard against it ourselves? And how are we to minister to those who have been impacted by it? Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> Welcome to the book of Jude. So for our time, we are going to be looking at five sections over the next two weeks. The background, the big picture, the brazen warning against apostates, the believer's instructions, and finally, the breathtaking promises of God. And so, Lord willing, we'll look at the first three sections this morning. So first, the background. So the author of the book of Jude is, of course, Jude. And this name, Jude, was also translated in the Greek as Judas. And it was a derivative of the Old Testament name, Judah. It was extremely common. Uh, in fact, um, it was used in Scripture 43 times to speak of eight different men, including two apostles, Judas the son of James and Judas Iscariot. Fortunately uh, for us today, Jude made very clear his identity. So let's, let's look at verse 1 together. It says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ 
and brother of James. And so we see here that Jude has a primary description and a secondary. Let's, let's look at the secondary first. He says that he is the brother of James. So this James is not James the Apostle, one of the twelve. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who eventually became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You can read about that in Acts 15. And he also, of course, wrote the epistle of James. Mark 6.3, it actually confirms their relationship at brothers. It says, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And so, as the brother of James, this provided instant credibility uh, for his letter. But look at the primary description that Jude has. He says, Jude, a bondservant. In the New American Standard, it says bondservant. You may have the ESV, which says servant, or the LSV, it says slave. And the LSV is right. Uh, The Greek word is doulos, and it means literally slave. So think about that. Jude essentially was the half-brother of Jesus Christ, but he didn't open his letter by exclaiming, Jude, brother of Jesus. I mean, that would be a mic drop. But instead, he chose to describe himself as a slave. Now, I'll open this up to the audience, but what is the primary purpose of a slave, especially in those modern times? I know Jeremy spoke well on that several weeks ago. What was the primary purpose of a slave? To serve? Absolutely. Anybody else? Obedience? Absolutely. Both of those are together. What's that? To represent their master, absolutely. It was to live in service for the will of their master. And this is a remarkable transformation because Scripture makes it clear that Jude, at the time of Christ's ministry, was an unbeliever. He didn't follow Christ. Uh, In fact, his family thought that he was out of his mind, John 7.35 and Mark 3.21. It wasn't until after the resurrection that he was converted. And we can only imagine how his eyes were opened and realized for the first time, all of these years I've been living with God. And I can only imagine he was deeply humbled and lived the rest of his life in in service to the will of the Master. And I think this is a great application for us. I'm sure many of us here are praying for an unbeliever. And if you're like me, it's easy to look by sight and become discouraged because you don't see anything happening. But we need to remember Jude because what is impossible with men is possible with God. And God takes the heart of stone and he removes it and he gives a heart of flesh. It's what he did with Jude. And so we can have great encouragement as we pray for our family members, as we pray for the lost, that God could do anything. Secondly, we look at the date. Now, to to know the date of Jude, it's important to grasp its connection with 2 Peter. 19 out of 25 verses actually find parallels in 2 Peter. And there's actually a lot of debate. What came first? Was it 2 Peter? Was it Jude? And although I don't think it's critically important, my conviction is that Jude actually came first. And, I mean, I'm sorry, that Jude came second. 
And I, the reason for that is a couple reasons. Number one, Second Peter was predicting the coming of false teachers as future tense for the most part. But Jude is describing them as already being present. Also, Jude actually quotes Peter. If you look at verse 17 and 18, it says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. So that is actually a direct quotation from 2 Peter 3.3. So the apostles that Jude is speaking about is Peter. So although we don't have a specific date for the letter, it seems likely that it was written anywhere between 68 A.D. and 70 A.D. Now the recipients. So a couple of things here. Number one, uh, we know that these people were of Jewish descent. I mean, an easy read through Jude, you're going to see that they were very familiar with the Old Testament and also the Apocrypha writings. In fact, 25 verses are in this letter, 15 references to Old Testament passages. So they were of Jewish descent. But they were also Christ followers. So unlike the Gospel of John, for example, which was written to all men, Jude was specifically written to believers. Notice the language in in verse 1. So he goes on. To those who are the called... Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. To those who are called. So this call here, it doesn't speak of a general call that goes out to all unbelievers. It speaks of the effective call of God. The call that takes someone who is dead in their their trespasses and sins and makes them alive in Christ. This is also called regeneration. And so the declaration of Scripture is that only those who are first called by God have any capacity to be able to repent and to believe. Jesus said this in John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So God is both the initiator and the completer of our salvation. It says, beloved in God the Father. So you'll see this a lot. Judas fond of the word beloved and loved. The tense of this is a perfect passive participle. That means that God has placed his love on believers in eternity past with results that continue in the present and in the future. So in other words... These believers and we as believers have nothing to do with meriting God's love. We didn't earn it. We didn't ask for it. We're simply the recipients of a choice he made. And furthermore, we can't lose it. And it says kept for Jesus Christ. This is a beautiful word. It's often used as a military guard and it speaks of being protected or preserved. And Jesus used this word to describe uh, his commitment to the disciples. John 17, 12, he says this, While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me. And I guarded them, and not one of them perished except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. We are kept by Jesus. 
Douglas Moo uh, has a commentary on this, and he said this. Being kept for Jesus Christ means that God, throughout this life, exercises his power on behalf of Christians to preserve them spiritually intact until the coming of Jesus Christ in glory. Believers have much to go through in this life, temptations, trials, and onslaughts from Satan and his minions, but God promises to watch over us at every moment, keeping us safe for Christ's sake. So notice how saturated these are in the sovereignty of God. Jude's purpose here is to emphasize to these believers that they are secure in their salvation. And there's there's good reason for that. Because they are in the midst of false teachers. They are in the midst of people that are committing apostasy. And they are probably thinking, am I next? Am I going to fall away? And so what Jude is encouraging them in the beginning and the end of this letter is that they are safe in the loving arms of God. And we are too, beloved. If you are in Christ, your salvation is secure. He goes on in verse 2 and he says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And so because of the gospel, because Jesus Christ calls believers and he loves them and he keeps them, we can know that his message to this church and to our church is that he has mercy and peace and love towards us. Amen? All right, some characteristics So Jude has a strong emphasis on threes. This is very interesting. Verse 1, for example, has three descriptions of believers. Um, Verse 2, three attributes of God's kindness towards his people. Verses 5 through 7, three examples of God's judgment. Verse 11, three examples of rebellion. And 22 and 23 have three ways to minister to the deceived. So if you ever wonder why it seems like a lot of Teachers and preachers have three points. Here's a good reason. It also includes several non-biblical references, and these include uh, apocalyptic books, uh, the Assumption of Moses uh, in verse 9, and the book of Enoch in verse 6 and 14 through 15. And so, quite frankly, there's been a lot of contention about this book. It's probably one of the reasons that it's historically very much underpreached. People have looked at this and they've wondered, why in the world is Jude referencing these non-canonical books if they're not inspired by God? And so I would call our attention to two observations I think are important. Number one, quoting from a passage in a book doesn't mean that Jude endorsed the entire book as inspired by God. Paul actually did that. So you can read about this. He quoted secular Greek poets in Acts chapter 17, verse 28, and in Titus 1, verse 12. And so what Jude was doing, he was simply taking facts that were historically accurate, and he was highlighting them. But he was in no means saying that the source they came from was inspired by God. Secondly, he was also using stories that his audience recognized, And they had great respect for. So they were really endorsing his overall theme. All right. So now that we have a background, let's let's look at the big picture. So in verses 3 and 4, Judas is going to describe the main purpose for our letter. And so for our time together, surprisingly, I've broken it up into three parts. 
And the first is Jude's burden. So look with me at verse 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. So it's, it's important to see that Jude's original intention changed. He was originally going to be speaking about the beauty, the joy of salvation, but he experienced a burden on his heart that he couldn't ignore. It was a burden that was inspired by God. And we, we see this in the word necessity. This word means to, to compress. And it speaks about being pressed down by a heavy burden or a mandate. And he was, he was burdened for the spiritual safety of the church. And I'm sure many of us here can understand what that's like. If you're a parent, undoubtedly you felt this. If you have lost friends, you have felt this. And I think that this speaks to what love should be motivated by. You know, often it is not convenient and it's not comfortable. But when we love someone and they're in danger, love speaks up. And that's what Jude was decided to do. The second thing we see is Jude's appeal. So he says, I am appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. The word contend, it refers to the exertions of an athlete in competition. It describes one who enters a contest and strives with great effort to win. And so I'm sure, like me, you've ridden by parks and you've seen people playing basketball recreationally, soccer games, and they're having some fun, right? They're chit chatting. But then you take that same scene and then you contrast it to the Olympics as a whole nother level. There's no more laughter. There's no more giggling. Complete focus. Because the stakes are so high. And that's the, that's the idea that Jude has here when he's talking about contending. Contending with the seriousness of your heart. This is a common theme in the New Testament. I provided some verses there. 1 Timothy 6.12, it says, Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good faith fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And so Jude is saying that we should contend earnestly for the faith. And so the question is, what is the faith? So the faith is not our personal faith, your faith, my faith. The faith that he's talking about here is the unifying doctrines of the Christian faith. We see that in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith. And he goes on with several other ones. And so there's unity here that we all share in faith. John MacArthur described this as, The faith constitutes the Christian faith. It's the faith of the gospel. It's everything pertaining to our common salvation. And so, while as believers, we may disagree on secondary doctrines, uh, like eschatology or the timing of baptism, which are very important, and we should discuss those things, what Jude is speaking about here are the core non-negotiable truths that make the difference between heaven and hell. 
He further describes it by saying that this faith was once and for all handed down to the saints. So he's validating that Scripture is authoritative, and it's not open to change or deletion or addition, no matter what our culture is saying or no matter what our political climate is saying. Paul was extremely passionate about this. We see this in, in Galatians 1, 8 through 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we preach to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. The stakes couldn't be any higher. We are to contend for the faith that makes the difference between eternity. But why? Why was Jude asking them to contend for the faith? So we see Jude's reason. Let's look at verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so the reason that Judas is asking for believers to contend for their faith can really be summarized in one word, apostasy. Apostasy, it comes from the Greek word apostasia, and it means a departure, a revolt, or a rebellion. And so it speaks of somebody that's made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but then abandons that profession for a lie. And their actions reveal that they were really never converted in the first place. And God's word is full of warnings about this. Hebrews 3.12, take care, brethren, that there not be any of you with an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. 1 Timothy 4.1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. And so these people are, these teachers are apostate and they are influencing the church. And so he gives several descriptions of them I think are worth highlighting. So going back to verse 4, it says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. So we see here that they were deceptive. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Jude, he calls them spiritual terrorists. Now, terrorism is, is frightening because it's deceptive. And so unlike past wars where you had a clear indication on who is on one side and who is on the other, terrorists, they blend in with the crowd. And you don't know often that they're the enemy until it's too late. We saw that in 9-11, didn't we? I mean, imagine those passengers who stepped on that plane. They didn't see people with ski masks on and machine guns, right? They looked normal. They blended in. They had crept in until it was too late. And that's exactly what these false teachers were doing. So the attack on the church, it wasn't on the outside. It was happening on the inside. But it wasn't a surprise to God. Paul actually prophesied this in Acts 20, verses 29 through 30. He says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so that's exactly what was happening. So they had crept in unnoticed 
But they also were ungodly who turned the grace of God into licentiousness. So it's interesting. Jude doesn't go into great detail about who specifically they were or even the specific doctrines they taught, but he does highlight the fruit of their lives. And that goes hand in hand with what our master Jesus had taught in Matthew 7, 15 through 17. He said, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by what? Their what? Their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. So the word licentiousness, it means lacking moral discipline or restraint, especially in sexual conduct, passing due bounds, excessive and abusive of freedom. And so they were practicing what we know is antinomianism. This is from two Greek words, which means against law. This was a belief that as Christians, we are now free from all moral law. Essentially, they were saying that grace was a license to sin, and it was a perversion of the gospel. But don't we see that today? We look around at the landscape of Christianity, and we see some of the largest denominations have now endorsed openly homosexuality. One of the largest megachurches in America is now openly baptizing sexually immoral people in the name of grace. But we know the gospel. And the same grace that saves us sanctifies us. Romans 6.12, it says, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And so they were... They were turning God's grace into a license for sin, and they ultimately, it says, denying our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. And so this is the common thread for all false teachers, is a rejection of Jesus Christ's lordship. So these people, again, they were not only, they were not outside of the church, they were in it. They were sitting in the congregation, some of them were teaching, and it had to be addressed. And we're going to do that, but one word of caution before we go any further. Jude's exhortation is that we fight for the faith, but it's not that we destroy the faithless. In the words of Alistair Begg, we are called to contend for the faith, but not to be contentious. There certainly is an opportunity and a time that we have to confront and love. We have to draw a line in the sand and say, this is the truth And I'm not going to compromise. And we should do everything that we can to win people to the truth. But we should always do it in an attitude of love. Remembering that we were enemies of God as well. All right. So our final section today, we're going to be looking at the brazen warning against apostates. So before Jude gets to how to contend for the faith, he's going to talk about why they must contend for the faith. In other words, he wants to really show what is at stake here. This is not just a matter of minor disagreement. This is talking about apostasy and eternity. And so almost half of the book of Jude is found in this section that we're going to be looking at today. And In this, he's going to provide 
insight into their character and really reveal that their ultimate destination is destruction. And so it can be divided into three parts. And the first is demonstrations of God's judgment in history. This is found in verses 5 through 7. And in this section, Judas is going to provide three examples of those who rejected trusting God for their sinful desires. And so the first is apostate Israel. Let's look at verse 5 together. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once and for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And so Jude is, is calling to mind to a, an audience that knew the Scriptures well. They knew the Pentateuch. They knew the history of Jesus, I mean of, of Israel. But he's calling to mind the fact that the same Israelites that had seen the miracles of God, they had passed through the Red Sea, a majority of those Israelites also perished in the wilderness. And why did they perish? They perished because of unbelief. They didn't trust the Lord, and their heart was exposed. They had committed apostasy. They had fallen from the faith. Next, he talks about apostate angels in verse 6. It says this, And angels who did not keep their own dominion but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Now, interesting passage. And we're going to go by this quick because of time, okay? But this speaks of the angels described as the sons of God in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, who left their God-given sphere of influence and behavior to commit sexual immorality with women. Now, you may say, I didn't read that in Genesis 6. Well, Jude is actually quoting, he's using another source called the book of First Enoch, where he's describing more details that you don't pick up in Genesis 6. But you can also look at 2 Peter th- uh, chapter 2 and verse 4 for more information. But essentially what he's revealing is the example that these, uh, these angels rejected their God-given position for perversion. They committed apostasy. And finally, we see perverse Gentiles. Look at verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example uh, in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So Jude provides a clear example here of a group of people that had turned away from a God-given mandate for sexuality and went the way of perversion and homosexuality. And they indulged in their sinful desires. So three vastly different groups, but they all had one common theme, and it was a rejection of the lordship of Christ. And ultimately, they all experienced judgment. And so Jude is emphasizing here the severity of the judgment that's to come on these false teachers and on those who are committing apostasy. The next thing we're going to see is the description of these apostates. And this is found in verses 8 through 13 and also verse 16. 
So after discussing the judgment that is to come, Jude moves on to provide a clear picture of the character of these false teachers. And so think back to MacArthur's illustration, these spiritual terrorists. And so what Jude is attempting to do is to unmask these terrorists and to show them and their character for who they really are. So there's several descriptions. Number one, they replace authority. Look with me in verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. You might want to underline or, or highlight that word dreaming. So for a believer, our highest authority is what? The Word of God. But for these false teachers, their authority was themselves. The word dreaming there, it's speaking of supposed visions, dreams that had come to them by God. And yet, they contradicted Scripture. And so, they decided to throw away Scripture and take up their own counsel, their own dreams. I saw an example of this, a man named Bishop Carlton Pearson. He was a former Pentecostal pastor who abandoned the doctrine of hell after supposedly hearing from God. This is, I'm going to give you a, a segment of this supposed revelation that he got. This is, this is supposedly God speaking. So stop telling people that they have to get saved. Tell them they're already safe with God. That any issue between them and God was resolved in Christ. Don't impose sin. Don't ask them or tell them that they're on their way to hell and all that kind of stuff. Come in another way. And he did come in another way. The way of hell. He decided to abandon the truth for dreams. And that's exactly what these men were doing. Secondly, they revile authority. Going back to verse 8, it says this, Yet in the same way these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these things they are destroyed. So the word revile here, it means to, to slander or to speak evil of. And in this case, these men were slandering angelic authority. And so one of the descriptions of a false teacher is they have no respect for authority whether that's the authority of men or angels or God. So in verse 9, Jude is referring here to another non-canonical book. It's called The Assumption of Moses. And apparently, what took place after Moses died is that there was this argument going back and forth between Michael the archangel and Satan about the body of Moses. Now, we can have a lot of assumptions about why. And I'm not going to go into that. But the point that Jude is making here is that when this happened, Michael respected the authority of Satan. And instead of taking matters in his own hands, he said, the Lord rebuke you. So it's interesting. So even though Satan is a fallen angel, he still possesses a measure of authority. And John MacArthur writes this. 
Michael knew that God could grant him power over Satan, yet he also understood that he was not to act beyond God's prescribed limits. Out of respect for Satan's status and power as the highest created being, Michael did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment as if he possessed sovereign dominion over him. But in contrast, these men, these false teachers, they acted as if they had power to overcome Satan in themselves. We actually see an example of this in Acts 9, 19, 13 through 16, where the seven sons of Sceva attempted to cast out demons. And um, we know the end of that story. It didn't go very well. Third, they rebel against authority. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. And so whenever you see the word woe there in Scripture, this is an important term. Because what it's speaking of, and it's indicating doom that is to come. Matthew 23, 13 through 36, Jesus actually gave seven woes against the Pharisees. And, of course, remember Isaiah 6, when Isaiah was in the presence of God. And what did he say? Woe is me. He understood the holiness of God and that destruction, that he was doomed to destruction apart from God's grace. And so these men are doomed for destruction And although each of these examples between Cain and Balaam and Korah, they were all different, they all had a common theme, is that they were rebellious against God, and they chose wickedness over God's order. They also replicate Christians. You find this in verses 12 through 13. So they appear to be a part of God's flock, but they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Let's look at this together. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by the winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever." And so Jude uses several examples from nature to paint a picture of their their facade that they're putting on, replicating Christians. So who could name some of them? We just read several of these um, pictures in nature. What are some of them you see there? Clouds without water. Absolutely. Fruitless trees. Yes, absolutely. So let, let's, let's look at these together. First of all, hidden reefs. Um, some translations might say blemishes, but hidden reefs uh, were destructive because they were essentially coral formations that were concealed from ships that were trying to make it safely in harbor. So a captain on a ship would be sailing along. He would think everything is safe only to discover disaster was, was right in front of him. And so in the same way, these false teachers, they kept their motives just far below the surface that they couldn't be seen. 
And they would creep into the love feast, these, these, these times where believers would get together in a potluck type of fellowship. And they would creep in and they would look like everyone else, but in actuality, they were bringing disaster. Clouds without water. This is a reference to Proverbs 25, 14. And it speaks to the fact that these false teachers never deliver on their promise. One commentator, uh, commentator noted, Palestine is a dry climate, tremendously dependent upon rains at crucial times to sustain life. And so when rain is desperately needed and thick clouds appear, the anticipation of rain is great. If no rain falls... Bitter disappointment ensues. And so these false teachers, they were boasting that they were going to bring about spiritual refreshment. But in the end, they didn't deliver. Autumn trees, twice dead. And so for a farmer, autumn was the last point in the farming season where they could expect a crop. So a fruitless tree would basically equate to disappointment. And so as a farmer would, would go up to inspect a tree, maybe from the distance, it looked like it was promising. But when he got closer, it revealed there was no fruit. And it was greatly disappointing. And so in like manner, these false teachers from a distance, maybe they look like everyone else. But when you inspect them closer, they're doubly dead, right? They have no outward fruit, no spiritual fruit. But in the core of them, they're also dead. Wild waves of the sea. This is a reference to Isaiah 57, verse 20, which says this. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. And so these false teachers, like a raging sea, they, they may have been full of charisma and, and an energy, and attracted people with that. But in reality, they were just full of wickedness. Thomas Schreider commented by saying, When we see the opponents were wild waves foaming up their shame, he was focusing on their evil works. Not only did they lack good works, but they specialized in evil ones. What they did is likened to that grimy foam that coats a beach leaving a sticky residue of shame behind. Finally, he says that they were wandering stars. Wandering stars. The Greek word here for wonder is where we actually get the English word for planet. So in ancient times, navigation upon, at the sea relied heavily upon fixed constellations. And so wandering stars spoke about these planets in which the navigators maybe thought that they would bring them to their desired destination, but they only resulted in confusion. And so these false teachers were like wandering stars, seemingly bringing about direction, but only bringing about confusion. Well, finally, we look at the doom of these apostates. And the doom is quite clear. They are reserved for judgment. First of all, let's look at verse 13. Wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars from whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. There is personal judgment to come for these false teachers. Jude has in mind here, without any question, hell. 
This is the ultimate destination of apostates. And I know this is a, a sobering doctrine. And quite frankly, it's a doctrine that in Christianity, it's not spoken about much. But Jesus never shied away from this doctrine. Jude never shied away from it, and neither should we. My question is this. How often do you and I meditate on the doctrine of hell? Do you know God intended this, this teaching, this reality, to inspire us to evangelize? To see the importance that we must reach out and call out to the lost before they reach this end result of hell? Ultimately, there's not only personal judgment, but there's going to be global judgment upon all false teachers. Look at verse 14 and through 15. It was about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they've done in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude is quoting again from the book of First Enoch, in which Enoch is prophesying about the judgment of God to come. And this is ultimately is going to be fulfilled in the second coming of Christ and the judgments that are going to come. Listen to what it says in Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following on him on white horses." From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So in conclusion, God is on his throne, and he will have the final word when it comes to these false teachers. And we can look around and we can see the havoc that has infiltrated the church through false teaching. But in the end, Christ is going to bring judgment upon all those who have propagated it. But in the meantime, what can we do? How can we strengthen ourselves so that we can be best equipped to fight for the faith? How can we personally minister to those that are being impacted by false teachers? And how can we encourage those who are on the verge of apostatizing? Well, the next time we get together, that's exactly what Jude is going to cover. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the book of Jude. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us all, that we would be motivated motivated to contend for the faith, that our hearts would burn for you and they would burn for the lost and that we would do everything that we can to speak the truth and love on this side of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.